podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to United Hour, your one-stop shop for all things Manchester United. I'm your host, Nick, and we are very pleased to welcome back Ali Woods. Say hello, Ali. Hey, Nick. Hello, United Hour fans and listeners. Yeah, any regular listeners. We've had Ali on a couple of times before. I think last time was towards the end of last season, if I remember right, where we were relatively pleased about how the season had gone. I think we were just talking about going to like FA Cup final and that kind of thing. And yeah, look, as most United fans were pretty happy with last season, but look, this season obviously has not gone to plan. Um, but yeah, look, we're going to talk about various things on the show tonight. Obviously, we will be talking about our recent win against Sheffield United, which was last night. Uh, Bobby Charlton, of course, incredibly sad news yesterday. Just came out, you know, a few hours before the game. We will have a quick chat about him. Uh, there's all sorts going on with the kind of ownership and takeover situation. And then, yeah, we'll look ahead to some of the games coming up. Uh, but I think we should start by talking about Sir Bobby. And, and you know, I was actually at a kind of daytime gig yesterday before the game and just got started seeing messages coming through from a couple of people, uh, you know, and it's really kind of like shocking news at the time. And, yeah, I mean, it is amazing to see some of the info then coming out. I mean, I'm sure maybe some of our longer, younger listeners don't know as much about Bobby Charlton as others. And yeah, he's also before my kind of time. But I'm sure everybody realises what an absolute icon he is in the kind of history of Manchester United. And, you know, he still has his name now on one of the stands over there is the Sir Bobby Charlton stand. I mean, sadly, we've not seen much of him in the past few years. For anyone who doesn't know, the his family did announce, I think it's about three years ago now, that he'd been diagnosed with dementia. Uh, so he'd obviously been suffering for a while now. And then, yeah, of course, the sad news yesterday that he's finally passed away. But then, you know, on the positive side, obviously remembering what a great player, his life, all these kind of things has been brilliant. Uh, we posted a couple of things on our Twitter today where I think quite a lot of fans have been turning up at Old Trafford today, laying reeds, the scarves. So it's quite a good showing there. Um I mean, yeah, I know you've been a long-time fan, obviously. I don't know if you have a kind of main memory or anything like that about Sir Bobby. Well, I'm obviously, so I'm I'm 29 and obviously started getting into football late 90s. Um, so I won't know anything about him and his actual experience on the pitch. Never obviously saw any of that or even really his sort of like post-on-the-pitch um, uh, football career. But what I will say is that there are some figures who transcend their sports. So, for instance, someone like when Kobe Bryant died, a lot of people would have known who Kobe Bryant was. They would have known the sort of phrase Kobe. And Bobby Charlton was that for football. I think anyone who lived in the UK would know Sir Bobby Charlton, no matter whether they were interested or completely disinterested in football and there's not many people athletes sports people that have that profound effect on generations and so for him to pass now i would say as england's best ever footballer it's a sort of remarkable life to have led and obviously for any man united fan is particularly Painful to see because of the sort of mark he left on the club. I believe he's the only Englishman to ever win the uh, Champions League World Cup and Ballon d'Or. And I think that is going to be a long time till we see that again. Yeah, he so, was actually the first ever player to win those three. Yeah. Uh, and there's only nine players who've ever done it. Yeah. Uh, Lionel Messi recently joined that list. But yeah, you know, you're talking about the all-time greats of football, like you say, to win those three. 
he was the first player ever, and there still isn't that many. And he's got that whole list of records. I mean, some of them have gone, but, you know, at his time, he was, for ages, England's top ever goal scorer. He was, of course, also Man United's top scorer, top appearances holder. I mean, those records were then taken by Ryan Giggs, Wayne Rooney, uh, Harry Kane. But, yeah, these players play a lot more games than ever they used to back then. And, you know, he only did that from midfield. That was the crazy thing that, you know, he wasn't a striker, but he held all these kind of goal scoring records. Absolutely crazy. Um, I mean, so many other things on the list as well that, you know, he is a kind of last heart back to a lot of our history. I mean, he was that he was the last survivor of the Munich air crash. Uh, who now he's obviously uh, passed away as well. And I think he was only one of two of that England 1966 World Cup team who were still alive as well. So, yeah, so many different for, you know, not just Man United fans, like you say, football, England football fans in general. And it just, yeah, transcends all of that. You know, there's often a lot of discussions about who is a legend, but, you know, he's one of those where there's just no debate, there's no discussion. It's just like straight on the list, basically. Is un- undeniable, un- undeniable great. I think as a football fan, it, it's easy to romanticise football a lot because we spend so much time watching it. But there's sometimes some poetry to football and there's something sort of intangible about watching it that you get pleasure out of something that there's no real reason why because it's just a goal like any other. But when you watch those clips of Bobby Charlton striding up 30 yards with the ball at his feet, the heavy sort of ball running through a muddy pitch with it bobbling and you see him strike that leather that ball right into the rocket up to the, the back of the net hitting the roof of the net it's just something as a football fan that gives you such like a a, a sort of profound pleasure of watching it like that's what you want to see and when you think that's obviously sort of 50 years ago 60 years ago when you can boot players on the pitch you can get your legs kicked out from under you and he's sort of magically just making his way up the pitch and rifling it into the net that you just don't see from United players now as much and any sort of player as much. And as you're saying, for all that from centre mid, those goal-scoring statistics, I think he will have left just a sort of indelible mark on, on the game. And especially as a Man United fan, when you hear what he did in the Busby Babes and the Munich air crash and where the career he went on to have, that's part of what is so great about being a Man United fan because we have this incredible history and it's sort of like a heroic history of the, in these sort of stories where you're sort of fighting against the odds, that, that, that underdog feeling, and it's all through like just sheer force of will and determination and hard work, and he epitomises all of that and had the talent to boot. So to see him pass is like a really sad day in this, in this club's history. But... It's reasons, people like that are reasons why it is so great sport in Man United because you get to have, you get to be part of this tapestry of like true footballing heroes and greats. Yeah, and it is a great time for, like I say, not just younger fans, you know, I'm older than you, but obviously I'm still too young to have seen. (laughs) Come on, you're not a day over 21. (laughs) Uh, I'm still too young to have seen Bobby Charlton playing. Uh, I did actually meet him once because when I was younger, I used to do in summers, Bobby Charlton soccer school was like a thing for years and years. And because, yeah, obviously growing up in the Manchester area, he used to show up now and again. And, you know, at the time, it didn't mean that much to me. Like, you know, you kind of don't, like, now I remember back. Thinking, oh, I wish I... Some random guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's some guy here. Yeah, yeah, you know. And, um, you know, didn't obviously get photos or I do actually have his autograph because I remember the first time I went and I came back over and told my dad, oh, yeah, there was this guy, Bobby Charlton. He's like, what? You met Bobby Charlton? Did you get his autograph? And I was like, no. He was like, well, next time. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I used to do that every summer. And I think actually that Bobby Charlton Soccer School has still been going until very recently. I actually did look it up and realise I think it was one of the casualties, unfortunately, of covid and didn't kind of survive. But for, I did that when I was a teenager and learned, you know, a lot of my football skills that still keep me going today. Uh, and it's been going for decades. So, yeah, his name did live, live on in kind of the football side and the academies. And, of course, he was a director at the club for years and years and years and, you know, was involved in over there and uh, was always seen 
and in the stadium. And like I said, it's only in the last few years since he was diagnosed with a dementia that he's not been seen that much. And now, obviously, we go there. But yeah, it's a great time for anyone to go and watch videos. Uh, there's good stuff. I know there was a documentary yesterday on Sky. Uh, there's loads of stuff out on YouTube. But yeah, go and make sure you're educated on the history of Bobby Charlton, what a player he was. And, and yeah, you know, going all the way back there. All, for, I think it's undoubted now. Everybody is saying the best ever English player. And, uh, you know, they kind of debates about United player. But yeah, he is right up there. And yeah, we still have the stand, obviously. The South stand nowadays is called the Sir Bobby Charlton stand. Uh, Nick, I need to see you strike a football as well because if you've been to Bobby Charlton soccer school, mate, I want to see you absolutely leather it top bins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, actually, yeah, one of my specialities is a great strike. I just need, yeah. I haven't got the speed to get my shot off it often enough, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, that strike that I learned over there still keeps me going. Um, but yeah, as I said, the name means so much to me and it has been great. I've seen people have been going to the stadium. There's lots of flowers, reeds laid out there. If anybody is in the Manchester area, I read that the club are welcoming people to come to the stadium all this week to sign a book of condolences. You can also go and add your name to an online book of condolences. Uh, so yeah, anybody in the Manchester area, it's worth getting down to the ground and, uh, and yeah, putting your name to everything over there um but yeah it was weird how this obviously the news came out just a few hours before the game and then sometimes those things become too big and the pressure off it ruins the game i mean i remember there was the kind of munich memorial game once and it didn't go well for us at the time uh but it was, but, one nil, and it was two man city wasn't it exactly we exactly as well and, yeah it didn't play the occasion not the game and it was just all a bit too emotional yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, we will start talking about the match. Uh, thankfully, it was three points and it had, does give us now two kind of wins in a row, even though we had that kind of international break in the middle. But, yeah, in a way you think, have we turned a corner? But, I don't know, the performances, we've kind of been nicking these wins. Obviously, the Brentford game, I was in the stadium I did stay until right at the end, whereas a lot of fans had left, had given kind of up by then. And, but yeah, I was still there. And those are the kind of moments that you live for. As you say, the history of people like Bobby Charlton, the history of Sir Alex Ferguson, Fergie time winners kind of came back there. But yeah, you couldn't call it any kind of vintage performance. And, um, you know, being at that Brentford game, it felt a lot like the Crystal Palace game that had just come before where we'd given a goal away had a lot of chances, but couldn't manage to get them. But yeah, we managed to get that win. We come back, Sheffield United away. We're the worst team in the league so far this season. And yeah, yeah. early on, we made them look like Barcelona, I thought. Like, you know. Oh, it's just, I don't know how many times, Nick, over the last 10 years, I've had the displeasure of watching essentially a championship side look like Brazil 1970 against our team. I just don't understand it. Suddenly, they're just able to sort of play through the lines at will. They're getting on the end of everything. They're winning all the second balls. I don't know what's going on. I mean, Sheffield, genuinely, and I, I mean this with no disrespect to any Sheffield United player, fan, manager, coach, are dross. They are useless, honestly. They are a championship side that has not... I don't, they must have been better last year. Like, I don't... They 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 looked knackered after seventy minutes. They couldn't handle Premier League pace of football. And I do think that generally with the teams that have come up this year, I think you look across both all the three squads and you're like, I don't know if any player would ever would be picked up by another Premier League team if they all went down. Like, and we same with Burnley, who at least play a bit bit better brand of football. We just seem unable to control the game against these sort of Championship level sides. I'll start with positives though. Six points out of six. We needed those six points because what, what do you think, Nick? If we'd have lost to Brentford and also to Sheffield today, would you do you think Ten Hag would still be in in the job? I mean, he'd certainly be under more pressure, but do you think he would have been sacked at this point? Well, I mean, this podcast is actually delayed. I'd been travelling, so we did not record after that Brentford game. So the last podcast we did was after the Crystal Palace game where we had lost. And I had him run on the show then. And yeah, we started talking that there is already talk from people saying, is 
Ten Hag going to survive? Uh, you know, this podcast is affiliated to redcafe.net. There was a vote on there and it felt like Groundhog Day. People were saying, shall we stick with Ten Hag? Thankfully, there was about 75% of people on there who were like, we want to stick with Ten Hag. But it did feel really like we've been through these motions before, whether it was Ole, whether it was Jose, uh, you know, Van Hal before that, where at some points, often these questions start being asked. And then sometimes you never recover from that. Yeah. So, you know, for that Palace game, we said, yeah, we're already these questions are being asked and rightly so. Um, but yeah, if that I, if the Brentford game had gone, if this game had gone, it would have been very difficult. Even though most fans, as I said, after that Palace game, were still wanting to stick with him. If you just keep losing, then what can you do apart from change the manager? You know, you can't change all the players mid-season and that's what happens. Um, I said before, you know, we've had this kind of pattern of managers coming in, having good first seasons, uh, but then, yeah, for whatever reason, struggling the next season. As I said, you know, we had you on towards the end of last year. We were all feeling pretty positive about the year. Um, okay, the transfer window wasn't perfect, but I'd say we definitely improved our squad. Uh, you know, there's question marks over the goalie, there's question marks over Mason Mount, but there's still, you know, good players on paper. And in a way, you know, we have improved our squad. So for us to go from that to just always killing it, I mean, of course, there has been a lot of injuries. There's been a lot of off-field kind of issues, whether it's Anthony, whether it's Greenwood, you know, a lot of things have been in the background Sancho's going on. Role. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Sancho, Sancho. Is, is remarkable. I mean, how, yeah, why, why you would waste months of your career, of your precious finite career at the age of sort of 22, whatever, we're on terms of screaming, it's bizarre. But people forget about that. I mean, I will say that as well, for positive, considering we're winning these games and this is not being generous to us, it is um, our, our probably fifth and sixth choice centre-back, if you count Luke, mm. Luke Shaw as probably higher up than Maguire in playing left centre-back, and our fourth choice left-back in the starting... You know, like, I remember when Liverpool, they had three centre-backs out at one point a couple of years ago, and people were talking like, how could they even field a team? What yeah. a brave team they are. They have three injuries in defence, even though everyone else is fit. And no one, we never get any sort of media coverage about how, like, how how um, injury-riddled we are at the back. Juan Bissaka's not around. Dallas has got to play every minute of every game. Um, so I will say that, you know, part of that, might improve and part of the fluidity, part of the sort of defensive sureness might improve when we get a proper left back, someone who wants who's left footed, who wants to bomb up, bomb up the left flank, give Rashford some support in attack. And um also uh, you know, when we've got sort of Varane and Martinez, they can play there and, and play up to, to scratch because obviously Martinez came back and wasn't fully fit. So I will say that that is a positive. I will also say what you were saying there about the, the transfer window and the squad we have. I don't know how you feel, but I personally think this is our biggest squad since Bergie retired. What do you think? Yeah, look, I was pretty happy with this squad. I mean, I did think we were still slightly lacking up front. We talked about a lot of this in the summer. I like Hoyland, but I just said, look, he's pretty raw. It's going to take him time to settle. I think he will be a good player for us. I was expecting, you know, for me, the number one problem was up front. And I thought we'd bring in somebody a bit more proven. Uh, whereas, you know, he's obviously one for the future. And I do like him. He's actually better than I expected already. But of course, he's having some kind of struggles in front of goal. I mean, he scored a few in the Champions League. He's not managed to get a Premier League goal yet. But I think, you know, he will do well for us eventually. But I did think we would bring in somebody bigger than that. Uh, you know, there is obviously question marks over the goalie. Although, to be fair to him, I thought he had a semi-decent game against Sheffield yeah, United. A uh, couple that he palmed sort of back, right back. Back into the danger zone, <laughs> but he made some. He made some good saves, and, and at least he didn't chuck one into his net. What Anana's done is, which is quite clever from him. This is a a advice for anyone starting a new job: start off really badly, so that when you turn up one day and you're not terrible, then people are like, "Oh, he's doing really well." And that I think yeah. what Anana has has done quite well. What he did yesterday was he didn't he didn't chuck one into his own net. He didn't yeah. take out an opposing attacker for a penalty. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, he's kept our expectations low. So, yeah, we're coming with a middling performance and we're all pretty happy with that. Um, but, yeah, he did. Early on, we were poor. We we started this game terribly. 
and he did save a couple. Like you said, we made Sheffield United look very good. I think we did come into the game as it went along. Uh, you know, we got that first goal completely against the runner play. And we will talk about and him a bit a more later. Well. It's not even, it wasn't even, it wasn't even like, oh, then we switched into gear and scored a nice goal. It was just like McTominay finishing instincts just out of nothing. Almost like you would say if Sheffield were the dominant team, we were like a mid-table team and we just took our chance, like took a half chance, basically. So it doesn't inspire confidence. I look back at the goals we have scored in the last two months, well, since the start of the season. And I, I think, how many could I pick out that are actually from like an actual pattern of play? Like actual like passing sequence? I mean, the two goals uh, we scored yesterday, I mean, they're sort of like, one's a brilliant effort from outside the box. The other one's sort of a scrappy, like, clever finish. McTominay's one's a clever finish from, like, bouncing around the box, a sort of set piece. The one against Burnley was obviously like a sort of wonder goal again. Right. Um, the two against Galatasaray. I mean, the, one, the first one against Galatasaray was a good counter-attack. So fair play. The Bayern Munich goals were all sort of scrappy and maybe maybe one of the Casemiro one, but even then, like the middle one, but and then he's on the floor and sort of kicking it around the keeper and stuff. And that, that sort of really concerns me that I can't... I look at us against Sheffield, struggling against players that teams like Sheffield United, teams like Brentford, who, let's be real, are not good teams, especially Brentford without their best player in Ivan Tony, struggling to break them down. Crystal Palace struggling to break them back down. Brighton not even really being able to get a, a lick on them in the second half. And I do wonder where we go. I don't know what Ten Hag has a solution for that, but that needs to start happening. We need to start looking dangerous and start looking like when we get the ball, whether it's in defence or midfield, that we actually have a plan for how to score a goal. Because when you look at these teams like Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool, I'm not even talking about Man City, obviously like a well-oiled machine at this point, but they receive the ball and they look dangerous. They look like they know what they're doing. Even if it doesn't work, even if they've got problems elsewhere, you know, I don't think any of those teams have a particularly excellent defence at the moment. But where I really worry about us is that still now we don't look like we know how to score a goal. And it's like they have to come from sort of random good finishes from a sort of half chance or, you know, a, a defensive mistake or something like that. I mean, this isn't even, even before you get on to sort of the defensive frailties and mistakes that we've been sort of been doing in the last couple of months. But that is a big concern for me because Ten Hag was supposed to be the guy. I'm giving a bit of expenditure and he will make us play attacking football. And I feel like it's still very pragmatic and that worries me, especially going into this week with two big games, which obviously we'll talk about later. Yeah, no, look, I agree with all those issues. Uh, I think we will take a quick break there and come back and talk a lot more about the Sheffield and kind of Brentford games that have gone over there. Back for part two of the podcast. And yeah, look, Ali, I absolutely agree with all the issues you had over there. I mean, we talked before about our defensive problems were the biggest issue so far this season for me, especially early on. You can slightly put that down to, of course, we've had huge defensive injuries, constantly changing. Um, I mean, it wasn't as bad over here in this game. Of course, it's a random kind of penalty uh, that gets given away. I mean, for me... I moan about VAR for years. I've said it. I never wanted VAR. I think they need to get rid of it. Um, for me, that shouldn't be a penalty. I kind of actually do understand that in this VAR era, with the new rules, it probably is a penalty. But, you know, that's the kind of goal we give away. I mean, we did give them other kind of chances. It's the inconsistency as well, isn't it? Of like, we have lost out against Crystal Palace and Tottenham. Both of those games, we had a rival defender stop the ball with their hands, just like McTominay did. And we got nothing. We got nothing in both those games. And that is where stuff like VR is so frustrating. Because if it was enforcing the same rule throughout the season, you might not agree with the rule, but at least it would be sort of like you could understand why it's brought in for that consistency. But when you've got Romero against against Garnacho when Garnacho's hit a shot towards goal Romero's come out and blocked it and saved it he's made a better save than Onana does on a regular basis and we've got nothing and then you, obviously today we've been punished for it that's where it's so frustrating yeah it is crazy as I say not a fan of VAR but 
I kind of did expect that penalty was going to get given just because the way the rules are, uh, that's the way it goes. But, uh, you know, we didn't give away as many chances in these last couple of games as we have done. Uh, you know, the defence is getting slightly more solid. We will focus on the players over there. I mean, on the XG side, if we look at these two matches, the Sheffield United kind of shows that we are slightly lucky to come away with a game. It's ba virtually bang even. 1.41 for Sheffield United, 1.46 for us. Uh, so, you know, suggests that we're lucky to get two goals out of this game. And obviously, Dallows is more or less a worldie that he smashes in over there. The game before as well, Brentford, we're only at 1.29 XG. We're getting two goals from late kind of scrambles from Scott McTominay. So, yeah, we're quite clearly not creating enough. And that is a big, big problem. You know, we've got issues at both sides. As I say, for the defence, you can put it down to injuries, we're on, like you say, fifth and sixth choice centre-backs, fourth choice full-backs. Uh, you know, our entire back four for this Sheffield United game are reserves, more or less. Uh, so, you know, we're waiting for players to come back. Thankfully, it looks like Varane is on his way back. I understand that Reguillon is now in training, although, you know, even he's our like, third choice left-back. But yeah, we're begging to have him back in the team. Uh, so yeah, hopefully he's back soon. But yeah, at you know, you talked about in general kind of Ten Hag style of play. As I said, last year we were all pretty happy. I've said earlier on this podcast that I think that he's tried to change the style this season to be a more attacking style. He'd moved away from having kind of two midfielders in front of the defence to having just one there, and it had been Casemiro, and then having two more attacking midfielders. You know, he was starting with Mason Mount, who now has come out of the team, started this game on the bench, only had a kind of brief cameo. And I think he was putting Bruno and Mount further forward, and there was way too much kind of for Casemiro to be doing. And he had been struggling with it. He's not been in best form either. Then also compounding that by having a kind of second string defence behind him, I think was all of what defensive issues were. Uh, it was interesting to see in this game, he started with a midfield we've never had before. You know, Amrabat had come into the team. He started as a kind of emergency left back. He is now playing that defensive midfield position, which is more natural to him. And, uh, you know, in this game, he's gone with the Muck-Rabat muck uh, midfield <laughs> partnership, uh, which is the first time, you know. So, yeah. You know, I think it is great that we've got Amrabat because we were very reliant on Casemiro last season. And as soon as he was out and, you know, he got suspended a couple of times, bit of injury, it was like, who's going to fill in there? And I think Amrabat comes in and does that job really well. And I'm sure he'll even get better and better in time. And Scott McTominay, he's been given his chance because of those two goals uh, and comes in and, yeah, gets another goal. Uh, you know, you can't argue with that. Uh, he does just seem to have that knack. But there is something lacking, though, on Scott McTominay's more like all-round play. Uh, you know, one of our podcast guys, Oshwin in New York, he does not like Scott McTominay at all. He's always throwing out how many touches, how many passes he made. And there is quite a crazy stat doing the rounds that from this game, Scott McTominay only completed nine passes in the entire match. Uh, he was only on the pitch. Yeah, I think he was substituted around the hour mark, but still, and it's a constant kind of theme with him. He doesn't seem to get on the ball that much. I mean, when he does, he doesn't give it away. He's actually got one of the kind of higher passing accuracies out of the team. And that's one of my favourite statistics. I'm always looking, and I think this is a throwback to Louis van Hal days, when I also always used to be looking at our players' possession stats. And they all used to be up, like, up towards the 90s, high 80s. And, you know, it's changed a lot. Different managers, Mourinho, Ole, all had different styles. And um, I'd say Ten Hag is kind of in between there. But yeah, we were awful in that first half because too many of our players were in the kind of 60s and even 70s. So it means, you know, you're giving away kind of one out of every three passes. Uh, Bruno was one of the worst defenders. I thought he had an awful game over here. But others as well were Lindelof, uh, Dallow were giving the ball away too much. And that's a big problem. So yeah, McTominay is actually one of our highest. If you look at just things like passing accuracy, he's not giving it away, but he's just not on the ball enough. He's not doing enough over there. And that is his problem. I mean, he does do a lot of off the ball work for us. So yeah, that's the kind of stuff that's not seen. I guess that's why he's there. But yeah, Ten Hag has gone for a more pragmatic style in this uh, in this game in particular, an away game, just to kind of grind out the result. But yeah, that is where we're going to lack. And I think he's now in a bit of a conundrum about whether he goes back to how things were last season, 
with sitting with two midfielders in front of the defence or whether he sticks to his guns. He obviously doesn't want to do that. He wants to go more progressive. He wants to go more attacking. But as he's done it earlier this season, it's just ended up with our midfield being a total sieve and letting through the opposition. And, you know, there was like three or four games where we've ended up conceding three goals. So, yeah, I don't know where he's going to go from here. And it will be interesting, as you say, we've got games coming up now, Copenhagen, Manchester City. We will talk about them more at the kind of end of the podcast. But... uh, This is how I see it. I think he's tried to change up this season to be more attacking. It's not worked out. And now it's up to where he decides whether he just sticks pragmatic because it kind of worked last year and, you know, we did well enough. Or does he stick with his philosophy and say, no, this is where we want to go for the future. This is how it needs to be. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how he's going to go with that. Um, As you say, that is the big problem. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with, I would agree with all that, Nick. I think there's his team currently sort of picks itself apart from um, when you have that other midfielder next to Amrabat. So obviously Casemiro is out. So I think Amrabat starts in the deepest line position. You've got Bruno in the number 10, Anthony Rashford either side, Hoyland up top. Your back four will be whoever's fit against <laughs> plays there. But it's a case of who's playing next to Amrabat. Is it Mount? Are we going to try and play this sort of high-pressing, high-everyone-going-forward system? Is it Ericsson? Are we going to play more like last year, where you sort of sit back, control the ball a bit more, a bit slower, maybe not able to sort of defend as much, but a lot more control over the ball? Is it McTominay, where you have a sort of halfway house, where he's sort of a bit athletic, doesn't really get on the ball, though, but offers more of a golf threat? Or... Will he now he's back fit and we saw him a lot in preseason? Think right, I'm you know you don't win anything with kids. Well, I'll prove you wrong and, and play someone like Maynu, who, mm-hmm. who, if you're looking at just the profile of player, he is the sort of most likely to fulfil that role as a sort of number eight player who can get box to box, control possession, also be able to progress the ball athletically. He seems to already be able to keep up. I mean, it was pre-season, so we don't know at Premier League level yet, but he seems to be able to keep up fitness-wise, strength-wise with, with, with the top players he was playing against. You know, he played against Arsenal, against Dortmund. So it'll be interesting to see Mainu if he gets fit and gets a chance, whether he will be able to get himself in the first team. What I think, again, trying to look for positives here, Nick. You No, I'm trying to look for positives. Firstly, we won the game, so that's good. And same with Brentford, what I will say in terms of our squad depth is that what's good to see in the last couple of games is that we've actually improved when we've made subs in the last half hour of games. Before this international break, um, we looked really leggy in the last 15 minutes of our games. We looked really tight. Mm-hmm. Like against Brighton, we were just getting completely run off the park in the last 15 minutes. We didn't seem to have anything. Wolves in the opening game, last 15 minutes, we couldn't string three passes together. We just try and boot it. So I'm glad that seems to have changed. Whether it's their fitness levels, perhaps preseason wasn't right. There was too much traveling and there wasn't enough focus on sort of fitness. But the fitness levels seem to have gotten up to scratch finally. And also, Ten Hag does seem to be making the right calls now in terms of subs, which I don't think was happening in the first few games of the season. Bringing Garnacho on to run at tired legs and bringing Ericsson on in the sort of last half an hour to control the ball, not have to quite do as much defensively because the opposition might be a bit tired, they might be sitting back, I think is really helping us in these in these last sort of 20, 30 minutes of these games. Obviously helped to score against Sheffield, helped to score against Brentford. And so I think that is where we still have a weapon over the mediocre sides that we actually have a subs bench now with players that can come on and change the game. Whereas last year, really, our only sub was Garnacho, an 18-year-old, and that was it. He's had another year now, and I've got other, other subs to, to bring on. We've got uh, Garnacho, Martial, Palistri, Ericsson, Mount, you know, these sort of players that can at least, maybe none of them are having a particularly amazing season, but they at least can change our style of play, give the opposition something different to think about. It obviously affected che- Sheffield. We, we, we As the game went on, I think we got more dominant and, and better and we'll, I think by the end, we probably should have scored one or two more. Um, and then also, I think against Brentford as well, you could tell, even though we weren't really being able to make the keeper work as much, 
you can tell Brentford were having to regress because we had these new players on these fresh legs. The the goals, the first goal actually comes from Garnacho turning back on his man and 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 putting that ball across and causing havoc. Um, and the other positive I say is he has had a strange United career, but Dallow is now I think starting to look like a good player. I don't know if he'll ever be a great player, but he looks. Good. His goal was really well taken. You'd never get that from Wambasaka. If that was Alexander Arnold, that would be all over Twitter. People are like, Ben, what an amazing player. How many right backs can do that? If that was Cancelo, that would be it. I mean, there are not many right backs in the world that can pick the ball up in that position and hit that shot like it. I think he's been consistent. I don't know if you saw any Portugal highlights, mm-hmm. but he's he's starting for them and he's and he's playing well for them. I think. You saw the Zaha goal against us, where he still obviously has issues defensively, one v one in those contests. I don't know if he'll ever be good enough to overcome that and become like a world class player. But I'm very proud, pleased that he's now become this sort of re- reliable. He seems stays fit. He progresses the ball well. He runs ahead of his man. He he takes on players in the box. He puts in more dangerous crosses, and I think you could argue that actually Dallow has maybe been our best player of the season. Not much competition there, Diogo. Yeah, but, I was just thinking, who else Stephen deserves a shout? <laughs> but yeah, in terms of sort of like improvement, stepping into that role and and uh, and goals like that today, like yesterday, I think sort of you have to say credit to him. He's obviously stuck to his task and he's, he's I think, rewarded Ten Hag. Now, I still think personally, we probably need to buy another right back who elevates us. But considering we don't have anyone else really to play in that position, I think he's done a good job. Yeah, I think Dallo is a good squad player. I've always kind of been happy with him as a squad player. He can play left side, he can play right side. Uh, you know, I kind of always saw that Aaron Wan-Bissaka was the more defensive option, whereas Dallo shows a little bit more on the attacking side. And yeah, if he can smash one in like that, then yeah, you, nobody can complain over there. Uh, but yeah, I do agree in general, our bench is looking a lot stronger. There is good options over there. I think that actually, though, is kind of part of the problem that Ten Hag, he doesn't have a clear, clear first 11. He's got a lot of options. Like you said, in the midfield, it's like almost the roll of a dice. Who's the best option? McTominay, Ericsson, Mount. I mean, Hannibal had a couple of games and ran around like a crazy guy doing some good work. Uh, he's still around there. So yeah, there is a lot of... He, And I think now he just needs to find what is that right kind of solution. It's especially in the midfield area. That's the biggest problem. As I said, last season, we were playing kind of two players more or less in front of the defence. He's tried to move to one and push a midfielder further on. It hasn't quite worked out. And we have to see how he deals with this going forward. I mean, I do want to focus on two particular players. Scott McTominay, who's obviously scored three goals in our last two games. And Harry Maguire, he came out of this match with a Man of the Match award. He's played the last two matches as well. Um, Both players were quite clearly up for sale this summer. Uh, The club was looking for offers. Ten Hag asked about it, and basically we did not get the right offers for either the players. I think most United fans, and you can tell me whether you're in this category, would not have been too upset about seeing either of them leave the club this summer. Uh, But yeah, they both ended up staying. Maguire has started both of these last two matches that we've won. I think this stat keeps getting thrown out now that under Ten Hag, he's played, I think, 16 matches and we've won something like 15 of them. Whereas obviously when he hasn't played, we've not had a good record at all. I mean, those stats are slightly skewed by the fact that he's tended to play against easier opposition. He's playing kind of League Cup games and weaker games. So, yeah. Sometimes people read a bit too much into that. But yeah, you can't argue with that. He has come in. And yeah, I thought he had a really good game here. Um, And yeah, I don't know where you're at on these two players. Were you begging for them to get out the club in the summer like most of our fans? Yeah, well, so I certainly would not have been upset if both of them left. Personally, before McTominay smashed in those last two against Brentford and became a Man United legend similar to Sheringham and Solskjaer. I uh, <laughs> I honestly thought when Medjbury came in, I thought, there we go, that's a replacement McTominay. You've got someone who is mm-hmm. going to run all over the pitch. He seemed technically more gifted, wanted the ball more, scored a, an absolute corker against Brighton, which is, is one of those goals where it's a shame because 
it's a youth player. I don't even know if that was his first professional goal for Man United, but it's a youth player scoring a 25-yard screen. Yeah, it was. And no one's going to remember it because it came in a dismal 3-1 defeat at home to Brighton. So I feel for him. But when I saw him against Burnley, and I just thought, right, okay, we don't we definitely don't need McTominay or even like a van der Beek because he's coming and replaced him. I think they accepted the £30 million bid for Maguire, didn't they, from West Ham? But Maguire refused to leave because he wouldn't accept the pay cut because Man United were unwilling to yeah, pay. Yeah, the, I think that was the way pages, it was. Which I thought at the time was so sort of arrogant of Maguire. Why wouldn't you want to go and play week in, week out West Ham? Obviously, it's turned out he's actually got quite a lot of games at Man United this season. So with, with regards to both of them, I think fair play to them, especially Maguire, I'd say, because he has applied himself well when he's been in the team. He's progressing the ball well. I think it's one of those where you sort of had in latter stage Wayne Rooney at Man United, where when you play him against the limited team who are going to sort of boot the ball long and go direct, you see how effective Maguire is and how talented he can be in terms of being up for the physical battle, being in the right place, winning headers. And then, you know, when he's not put under a lot of pressure and he's facing the opponent's goal and he's got loads of time and space, he's able to pick really nice passes. But we've got next week Man City. If I saw Maguire starting at at centre-back, am I going to be like, great, he'll really deal with Haaland's pace? No, of course not. I think part of the reason why we don't seem to be able to play one defensive midfielder with two ahead of them like you'd say a City do or a Liverpool do, is because we're having at the moment due to injuries and potentially just because of our limited variations of types of centre-back we have, we don't have two physical, pacey, dominant centre-backs like Liverpool have with Van Dijk and Konate or Man City will have with sort of a Kanji and Ruben Diaz. We don't have those types of centre-backs who are able to sort of take on players, take on strikers 1v1 to outpace them. So we're having to play deeper. We have to play a sort of more lethargic style, slower style, so that we don't get caught on the break. I don't think Maguire's the answer. I think fair play has applied himself well. He gets to sort of a lot of stick. I don't like that he didn't leave in the summer. I think that was a, sh- a shame. I think he could have had a good rest of his career at West Ham. I think it was sort of greedy, especially in a Euro season. But the fact that Martinez is now out for three months Baran, he can only play about two games before he tweaks his toe or whatever mm. he does every single time. So maybe he will end up getting quite a lot of games and it seems Southgate seems to like him anyway, so he's in the Euros. Um, at, at McTominay as well, look, hey, you know, people have short memories. Like, if you're on Twitter, after the Bayern Munich game, he was getting slated because he lost the ball just to, due to poor technique and then just sort of jogged slowly behind mm, yeah. as he ran up the other end of the pitch. A few days later, he's being lauded as like the saviour of Man United and that he gets the club. I think there's a real recency bias. I think he's a wicked finisher. He's definitely a weapon you can use off the bench, coming on 20 minutes to go. And I don't think opponent opposing teams would like to see him come on, which is so silly to say of like McTominay, you don't feel like he's this potent player. But but like you wouldn't because, you know, the ball lands him in the box and he just seems to have this knack. He's a really great finisher. Yeah, he has always been a really good finisher, and he's been scoring for Scotland this season as well. Uh, he's scored three kicks that they got disallowed. I mean, it's free. I've never seen him take a free kick in his life, but he absolutely banged it in. It was incredible. And um, I remember against the Leeds when we 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 beat them six two, and he finished two got two goals in three minutes, and they're both wonderful yeah. finishes. So he has that in his locker. I feel like the fact that those two are performing actually showcases where we are at the moment in terms of our mediocrity. I think it was the same when you had Reguillon come in and suddenly he looked like the best player in our team yeah. because he was just doing simple stuff like trying hard, running and tackling. <laughs> and people were like, oh my God, this guy is a revelation. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think if we're going to get anywhere, we have to evolve past these players. It would have sold, that, sold them. I wouldn't have been upset. I don't think it's great that they're still on the team, but I'm glad they're still applying themselves. And I think fair play to them, and that's what you want. And I hope, even though we've sort of scraped past these last two wins, we're just starting to hopefully maybe get a little bit of spirit, a little Mm. bit of belief, a little bit like, oh, we can score more than the opposition. Because I think the first part of the season, we were just like, well, it doesn't even matter if we score because we're going to chuck three in our net anyway. 
Whereas hopefully the defence maybe looks slightly more solid, even though the attack's a bit turgid. So, so fair play to Maguire. And also shout out Evans as well, because when we signed him, I thought, oh my God, what a silly signing that is. Like, again, shows the state of our club. Like other teams buying these young, talented European footballers and we're buying 35-year-old Johnny Evans. We're buying him, but signing him up again. But fair play. He's got, uh, was it two for two, three for three, whatever it is? is it yeah, no, he's done um, very well. And, uh, you know, I didn't expect to see him in the team. I thought, yeah, he'll fill in a squad place. He's a bit of, maybe a bit of like coaching or something. But yeah, as you said, we end up with six choice centre back. But yeah, we can't complain. They're delivering. They're doing what they can. I do wonder if with Harry Maguire losing that armband has taken a bit of pressure off him and he can just focus on his game. We've seen this before. I don't know if you remember, Antonio Valencia was our captain and he literally said, I don't want to be captain anymore. It's like too much pressure. And he did a similar thing. He had a kind of resurgence after giving up the armband. So yeah, I don't know if there's anything in that. But yeah, as I said, I was expecting these players to leave like you. They're still here. But if they're delivering, look, we cannot complain. Uh, we will take another quick break there. We will come back for part three of the show where we talk a little bit about the ownership situation and look ahead to the couple of games coming up. Back for part three of the podcast. Before we start talking about the games coming up, Copenhagen and Manchester City, do want to give a quick update on what's happening on the ownership side of things. We actually like nearly a year on when the Glazers announced they were exploring kind of options. And I remember people were partying. They thought, we're finally getting rid of them. Who's going to take over? We're, everything's going to change. Woohoo. And this saga has dragged on and on and on. And I think I remember we briefly touched on it on the last time you were on. And I think I even said at that time that I'm kind of open. I don't mind which way. I just want a big change. But I did have a preference for the kind of Qatari bid. Uh, I actually had a kind of stronger preference for it more lately, mostly because it kind of started looking as it was the only one that was actually going to get rid of the Glazers. They talked about clearing all the debts and also they'd made like a firm commitment for investing in the infrastructure. Uh, since then, it looks like the Qatari group, Sheikh Jassim, the 9-2 foundation made a kind of last cap, last gap bid a couple of weeks ago, raised their bid up to something like a crazy 5.25 billion pounds for the club. Also had committed something 1 billion plus for the stadium and stuff. But I think it became pretty clear that the Glazers had decided they were not going to sell all their shares. They were not ready to go. You know, there's been rumours about this for a while now that at least a couple of them, maybe Avram, Joel, did not want to sell out, still see a future for like making more money from the club. And yeah, with that, Sheikh Jassim said, right, I've had enough. My bid is off the table. You know, I've been waiting around long enough. And that's it. That was my final bid. If it's not accepted, I'm done. I'm out of here. And we're now left with Sir Jim Ratcliffe from Ineos. And the talk is that they're talking about a minority investment, 25% deal. I find it very difficult to get excited about this kind of thing because, you know, the Glazers are still mostly staying on there. There is a few kind of positive noises saying that Sergeant Ratcliffe wants to come in. He wants to be involved in the football side. He wants to make changes in our structure. And, you know, now after being resigned to the club, not being completely sold and not having a complete change, any kind of change like that still seems like it's better than nothing. But, you know, even that now, initially papers and media were talking about it being done this week, just gone. And now they're saying, yeah, it's still up in the air. There's still a lot to be decided. But yeah, as you know, this saga has dragged on a ridiculous amount of time. I don't know where you're kind of at, what kind of feelings you have on it. But, you know, at one point I went from being pretty excited about big changes coming on and thinking about which is the best option to just now being, look, just anything, anything will do. And I'll be happy with any kind of change. Just, you know, what can we do with this? Well, yeah, let, let, let's be real. Like, if you ask the Glazers to pass you the remote control, it would take six to eight months and three people would lose their jobs. Like, they don't do anything quickly and they can't even leave quickly. And I agree with you. It's crazy. It's been a year because I remember probably 11 months ago it would have been that, yes, it was exactly that. It was like fantastic. A new era starts today. Can't wait to get rid of them. We've got a good manager in. It's all looking positive. I think you've got to keep some perspective. And 
I would say that even though it might not be what people wanted exactly, Glazers having less control and that control going to someone else, I think is still positive news for me. I too have been hearing that, you know, Sir Jim Ratcliffe is very keen to have sporting involvement, sporting directorship involvement. Already that seems like that might be in the works because there would be linked to Paul Mitchell as the ex-Brighton director of football as sort of head of head of football activities at United. The Glazers have proven to be useless owners, ineffective owners, post-Fergie, that uh, they can't run a successful, competitive, winning football club. So if it... If this is, which is what has been suggesting that it's a path to full ownership of someone else, then I'm happy with that. As I talked about last time I was on the podcast, I had my own personal moral issues with being a state-owned club. I didn't believe that Sheikh Jassim was this independent person who had nothing to do with the Qatari government and was not, in a way, working with them. I believe we would have basically been a Qatari-owned football club. Um, I still question whether Sheikh Jassim is even real. I would be I would be a bit perturbed to have the club be bought by a man who there's not even video evidence of existing. So that's, that's a bit strange. But um, so I'm personally sort of glad that that is not happening. And it's one of those where you look at teams like Man City and you think, yes, you have to be owned by a sort of despot nation of oil-rich um, sort of autocrats who have unlimited money and, and obviously sort of morally questionable um, to be successful. But you look at PSG and you think, well, have they been a success since they've been bought? I mean, they've won plenty of league on titles. Their wage bill is way more than the next biggest club in, in France. They should be winning out every year. They've only got to one Champions League final in the last 11, 12 years since they've been taken over. They've never really looked that close to winning it. Their squad looks all over the place and they just lost 4-1 to Newcastle in the Champions League. So it's hard. And admittedly, Newcastle, of course, have their own state oil. Yeah, that is a funny thing. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle have actually done annoyingly well. I I wanted them to fail very miserably with those Saudi kind of ownership coming in. But yeah, unfortunately, they've kind of done annoyingly well pretty quickly. I mean, yeah, I do totally understand. And there is big debates about this on kind of Red Cafe all the time, the moral side. uh, And I do get that, especially the kind of sports washing and that kind of over there. I mean, for me, I was always like, listen, I want, what is the best option for Manchester United Football Club? And uh, if these guys are going to come in, clear the debts, get rid of the Glazers, start rebuilding our stadium, then I'm kind of willing to look at that. I mean, there's also questions about uh, now that Sheikh Jassim kind of walks away, is anything going to actually change in Qatar on the kind of human rights and things like that? So, yeah, I don't know how much kind of connection you have there on it, but. Oh, I totally understand people's worries about these things. You know, sports washing quite clearly is a thing. Uh, you know, I was kind of glad almost in a way that we had Qatar because Saudi Arabia, for example, is a much worse regime. And I think often maybe people don't know that much about the differences. They'll often say, oh, you know, all the Gulf countries, they're all the same. Uh, I mean, have kind of actually worked a fair bit in that kind of region. So kind of understanding, yeah, Saudi Arabia are much, much worse, for example, on the human rights side. But yeah, you're talking about differences, uh, splitting hairs over there. Uh, I think often, yeah, it is good for a spotlight to be shined on these countries to see how things can improve over there. We had these kind of debates during the World Cup. But Maybe it's all irrelevant now anyway, because it sounds like Sheikh Jassim has walked away. Whether he comes back with an extra time kind of bid to try and take this on again, I don't know. But it, it, I think that I'm reading between the lines, I think it's been pretty clear the Glazers decided quite some time ago they were not ready to sell all their shares. They wanted to stay in in some capacity. Uh, I think the Qataris had come in and it was an all or nothing for them. They weren't interested in any kind of minority option. Whereas Sir Jim Ratcliffe has obviously chatted clearly with the Glazers. He's talked before about, yeah, I know these guys, I've met them. And I think he's probably been more open to say, look, what do you want? And he wants to come in in whatever capacity he can. 
And yeah, they're looking at this kind of 25% deal. The only worry for me on that kind of thing, and I do agree with you, though, that taking anything away from the Glazers is better than nothing. So, you know, if if you said a year ago, somebody had said, oh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe is coming in to buy 25% of the club, everyone would have been pretty happy with that because we were sat there. But in the meantime, having been dangled this carrot of getting rid of the Glazers completely, it now seems a disappointment. But yeah, say one year ago, it had been announced that Jim Ratcliffe's coming in with 25% and hopefully with a view to taking more ownership of the club in the future, it would have been seen as a positive thing. My only worry is when you start ending up with all these different factions, because we'd end up with something like 25% Jim Ratcliffe, I think 44% the Glazer family, and there's even six different ownerships within that. And I think that has been one of the big problems. You know, you said they're always so slow and it's because they're all, there isn't just one Glazer, there's six of them. They all have a shareholding. They all have a voting right. And I think uh, if anyone's seen kind of succession or something like that, these guys are all sat around arguing their things in their kind of family business. And maybe there's no like clear way forward for them themselves within the family. And then we also have this kind of 30% listing out in New York with all sorts of small shareholders. And there's various big hitters in the hedge fund world involved in there as well. Uh, but yeah, it's a crazy kind of messy situation, basically. You know, it gets quite ridiculous when on a football show, we start talking about shareholdings, the New York Stock Exchange. But just to keep things simple, it is a messy situation. And that is one of the problems when you start having too many different people, too many different opinions. Uh, I mean, at one point, some of the papers are reporting that Surgeon Ratcliffe wants full control of the sporting side. I think it's highly unlikely that the Glazer family still being like the biggest shareholders together are going to give that away. They're surely still going to want some kind of say. And, you know, often people say, oh, the Glazers don't care. They're not interested in football. They don't know anything about football. I actually don't think that is true at this point. I think there's somebody like Joel Glazer, who has been a shareholder of this club now for more than a decade. And it's pretty clear that he is involved day to day in our club. Uh, not for the betterment for the club, unfortunately. I think since he has been involved post-Fergie, things have not gone in the right direction. We know there's been so many wrong decisions made one after another. No kind of joined-up thinking in recruiting managers, players, wasting huge amounts of money in the transfer market. And I think a lot of the, that is down to the fact that Joel Glazer has unfortunately been involved in the club and does think he's somebody who knows about football. And I think that is the big problem. Um, so yeah, the only worry for me was have it, if we end up with these kind of boardroom clashes. Uh, I don't know if you remember at Arsenal, they had this situation where they'd had Kronky and there was Usmanov, the big Russian shareholder. They had big shareholdings and they did not agree. And for a while, it was a big problem for Arsenal until uh, the American Kronky then bought him out and took control himself. So yeah, look, we wait and see. We have no say in these things anyway. Let's see what happens. I... I'm kind of with you that 25% is still better than nothing. And you just hope that we do get those kind of structural changes that we desperately need. Uh, my biggest kind of worry, though, is where is money going to come from, from much needed improvements at Old Trafford and the training ground and things like that. But yeah, as I say, we have no say in these things anyway. And it's kind of just watch this space. Let's see what happens. And as I said, initial reports that this Jim Ratcliffe deal was getting done quickly are clearly wider the mark. And yeah, we'll see how long this drags on for. I'll be, I'll be surprised if anything is done this year. I think we'll still be going into 2024 discussing what is going on with this. Uh, but yeah, as I say, wait and see. Uh, look, we will finish off the podcast talking about the next couple of games coming up. So yeah, first up, we've got Copenhagen. I know you said, I think you were at the Gal Galatasaray game, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was, Nick. <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, our Champions League campaign has not started well. Two losses. And in two games that we actually scored a few goals, looked like we might have had some kind of life of us. But yeah, we come out with zero points. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we've got to the third game of the group stage and it is already our Champions League future hangs in the balance. Bayern Munich, losing it away at Bayern Munich is no, nothing embarrassing. And to actually finish with the scoreline of 4-3, which is probably slightly flattering. Although we played with a better team for the first 20, 25 minutes of that game, uh, which was nice to see. I think Copenhagen will be, I mean, I watched most of their game, Copenhagen versus Galatasaray, in the first um, round of matches in our group. 
And they look good, Copenhagen. They move the ball around well. They seem to move it slickly. Um, I, I, again, you know, in terms of the players we have compared to their players, we should at home be winning this pretty comfortably. We're not going to, obviously. That's not going to happen. But, you know, a bit of McTominay magic in the 98th and 99th minute might uh, see us through. I uh, hope that maybe we're starting to get a little bit of defensive solidity we should have enough to score. We should be able to get one or two against them. We just need to win. If we lose tomorrow and it looks like we're going out of our Champions League group and three games with no points, or even if we just get a draw one point out of nine going into that City game, which could be a real humbling, then it's going to be real, real toxic stuff again. At the moment, we're, stuck, we're just sort of getting through and... We're just keeping the media off our backs slightly, even though everyone who's watching the game acknowledges that we're not playing well, but it's harder to criticise when you're winning. Um, but we just need to get through tomorrow. And what I will say is that we definitely do look more fluid in the Champions League for whatever reason. I don't know what's different to Premier League, Premier League teams, but Galatasaray, we should have had a few. We should have gone 3-1 up for me before we conceded that second goal. Um, and, you know... Uh, uh, I think we, we at the face of it, we played all right against Galatasaray. I think for 70 minutes, we were comfortably the better team. Galatasaray had sort of that one shot in the first half, which got them a goal, which took a huge deflection over Anani, even though it was poor defending before that. I think they were very lucky to get that. And then um, and then it just obviously all capitulated and fell apart and uh, yeah, we were chasing the game. So I take, I take heart from that, similar with our first 20 minutes against Bayern. I take heart from that that maybe... Maybe Ten Hag's style or brand of football seems to maybe work better in Europe. And if we stop chucking it in our own goal and we can do our best to concede less than three. <laughs> so suddenly, if we beat them, we're six points off the top. We've we've got finally got a win in the Champions League. We go into that City game. I don't think we will. But if we beat City, then we'd be three points off, off City uh, at this stage of the season, which you would always take. So there's always that potential. But as they say... In football, it's the hope that kills you. <laughs> if we don't win, then we're even like, you know, in doubt of going into the Europa League, which is, you know, an embarrassment anyway, if you end up third and drop down over there. But even that would be in doubt. Uh, you know, Copenhagen, Arno Mugs, they had like a decent result against Galatasaray early on that we've obviously lost out to. And they were uh, beaten by Munich for a while. Although, yeah, Munich came back into that game uh, pretty strongly. So, yeah they're definitely going to be a worry for us. And yeah, but look, they are the weakest team in the group. If we can't be winning this, and not just this game at home, the one away as well, we have to win both of those two to get back on track in the Champions League. And as you say, it's the big one, the Manchester derby next weekend. Uh, I mean, I will say for Ten Hag that last season, he did pull out some great home results in big games against Liverpool, against Manchester City. Oh, home form was brilliant last season. It has not been this season. I mean, I know, I think what you said, how many games have you been to? All lost, were they? All lost, mate. I definitely, I didn't get to see the Brentford one, let me tell you. I didn't see Wolves. <laughs> I think I've seen every other home game and it's been utter trash. <laughs> uh, I thankfully wasn't at Brentford one. I was at the Palace Cup win, so I have seen a couple of the wins, but uh, I've also been for there you, for mate. too many, <laughs> too many losses. Uh, yeah, yeah. I also took my daughter to her first game this season, which was a 1-0 loss to Crystal Palace. So I'm not sure she's going to want to go again. Uh, Welcome to the club. <laughs> but yeah, look, Manchester City, as I say, even in past times when things have been bad under Ole and things like that, we still managed to pull out some results in this game. So it's always that, you know, it's that kind of game where form and whatever can go out the window. And maybe Manchester City have not been as brilliant this season as they were kind of firing last season. You know, they've had some changes themselves. Uh, De Bruyne has been out. A couple of other players like Gundogan and all left. So they're and not... Kanji they've... will be out as well. Got a red card. So I'll be missing yeah. the player at the back. And he, he uh, really did a, a number on us in the um, in the home, the City, the, the away game, sorry, um, that we played against them. Yeah. Yeah, but obviously they've got a ridiculous squad, so many different options in there. We have to see who exactly is available for us. I know you mentioned Kobe Mainu has been back in training. Uh, you know, Reguilon has been back in training. So, yeah, we have to see what kind of squad we can get out of there. Hopefully, if we can get a couple of those players back by this City game, it can make a difference. Uh, you know, I, I do think like it's difficult to get 
super like optimistic about that City game. You would obviously t- probably take a draw, uh, you know. We but we do need a win against Copenhagen uh, to get any kind of confidence going into that match. Uh, we will of course be back after those games. I mean, all right, I'll push you for a couple of just predictions for these two games. Go on, Copenhagen and City. What's your quick, quick predictions there? So Copenhagen, I think we'll have a Hoyland special. It's a Champions League game, so he'll score. So we'll beat them 2-1, a classic scoreline. Similar, Brentford, Sheffield, Copenhagen, you're next. You're going to get thrashed 2-1 by the mighty Man United. And then, so, City. Look. <laughs> I can hear the, I can hear the hope all draining out right there. Look, this is not me. I would not bet any of my money on this prediction. But let's just, for, for, for the random sake of it, just say we're going to beat them 1-0. It's going to be a defensive special. All right, yeah, works for me. Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna go with those as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, Ali, we're going to finish off over there. Why don't you let all the listeners again know where they can go and see your stuff? I mean, yeah, as I say, check out Ali Woods. He's got, I always see some of your little clips and everything on Instagram, some very funny stuff going on over there. And as I say, he's come straight from a gig tonight out in Hackney. Uh, anyone in London can catch your stuff. But yeah, let us know what you're doing at the moment. What? Let, I'll give you 30 seconds to plug whatever you want to plug. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, if you want to, if you want to check out any of my comedy stuff, it's all on Ali Woods Gigs. That's A-L-I Woods Gigs on any social media. You'll find me. I do regular sketches and clips of my stand-up and crowd work. I'm most likely going on tour at the end of next year. So if you're wherever you are, I'll probably be coming near you. So check out that with my with my new stand-up show. And you can watch my uh, stand-up special that I recorded at Leicester Square Theatre for free on YouTube. So just type in Ali Woods on YouTube and you'll find it there. Great stuff. And yeah, we'll post up some uh, links for you up on our Twitter and everything and get them on Red Cafe so everyone can check you out. Uh, thanks very much for joining us again. Fingers crossed we do get those two results and we will definitely get you back later in the season, Ali. Appreciate it. Thank you every time, Nick. It's great. And also, please do get me on when we've won because it is more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you get. I hope you can get back to see a good result. We'd also had Imran was on the last one. He'd had an awful record as well, giving his way his tickets for the couple of matches that we won. He'd seen the whole losing run. But yeah, I guess a lot of stories is like going that this season. Like I said, last season, we were so great at home. So yeah, we need to get that home form back on. And I think, yeah, this will be the week. Copenhagen, Manchester City, let's get that home form back and firing and uh, make Fortress Old Trafford the place to be. Uh, Thanks very much, Ali. We we will see you back later in the season. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to United Hour. Remember to follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at United underscore hour. Please take the time to leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. United Hour is brought to you by the Sports Social Network and our theme song is by Ancient Feelings. To get in touch, please email unitedhour at gmail.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.